of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. People seem to quite like quizzes, and pub quizzes in particular are very popular, a feature of 21st century culture. So let's begin with a little quiz, a special round featuring questions about inventions and discoveries. Round one, inventions and discoveries. Now, what normally happens at a pub quiz is that people get together and they give themselves a name. You know, the Brainiacs or the We Thought It Was a Disco Team or whatever. But we haven't time to do that, so I, I've picked some names already and we're going to divide it into two teams. First on my left, the team called Is There Anybody Left? And on the right, Right again. That's not a, a hint as to how this is going to go. And just remember, it's only a game. It's just a bit of fun. So, a special round on inventions and discoveries. I'll look for the first hand up. Who invented the telephone? No, I can't say it out loud. You have to put your hand up so that, so that I know who got it first and can allocate marks. We'll try that one again. Oh, is there anybody left? Yes. 
Alexander Graham Bell, thank you very much. Second question, okay. Who discovered America? Excuse me, is there anybody right here? No mind, is there anybody left? Who discovered America? Thank you, Jane. Christopher Columbus. Well, I know over here already, already, Smart Alex is saying actually it was discovered by the Admiral Cheng, who discovered it in 1421, although, of course, the American Indians had found it long before then. But uh, actually, there is a theory that it was a man from the Isle of Skye who got up one morning with a terrible hangover and turned right instead of left and uh, ended up in America. But, okay. Let's say it's one each, one each at the moment. Who invented the television? Oh, see, they're putting their hands up and you're not. I'm sorry. Yeah, okay. John Logie Beard. Okay, thank you. Um, okay. Uh, who discovered Neptune? Uh, no, no, oh the, oh, the boat Neptune, yes, I see where you go there, yes. Neptune was actually discovered in 1846 by Johann Gottfried Gall. I actually was going to ask who discovered Uranus, but I thought we weren't ready for that question just yet. Okay, who invented the pneumatic tyre? Oh, don't say out the answers, put your hand up. Yes. Goodyear, that's now, you see, you say Goodyear, but I say Dunlop. That's what you're going to say, Dunlop. Okay, and finally, who discovered penicillin? Yes, Alexander Fleming. Someone who's right again and put his hand up. Bonus point for that. Inventions and discoveries. Now, they're not the same thing. I always remember a teacher pointing that out to me. The crucial difference, an invention is something someone makes. A discovery is something that was there all the time, but no one knew about it for ages until someone found out about it. Difference between inventions and discoveries. I thoroughly enjoyed that great book, 1,000 Great Inventions and Discoveries, that catalogues the evolution of ideas and innovation that brought us the wheel, fire, writing, reading. But I must say that did create a problem for me. I found myself wondering which came first. You had to be able to read before you could write so that you knew you were writing real words. But how could you know how to read if no one had written anything before? Never mind chickens and eggs. Reading and writing, there's the conundrum. Which came first? Think about it when you go home on the bus tonight. When it comes to God and what we know about God, or think we know about God, opinion is divided. Is that stuff invented or discovered? The critics of religion come down clearly on the side of invention. All talk about God is merely a product of our deep inner needs and our psyche and all that stuff. Projections of our own fears and aspirations. Nothing more than the accumulated insights and wisdom of those who enjoy the power over others that claiming you're in touch with God gives you. Those who understand our knowledge of God to be the result of what they call the divine initiative, they see it differently. They say two things. They say God has made himself known to us 
through the wonders of his natural world and the insightful and the humble and the intelligent and the spiritually alert can detect the hand of God in his creativity and and also through that moral sense that infuses the world. If we're open and asking, we can discover his handprint and feel his heartbeat in the rolling seasons, the provisions of nature, the moral and ethic imperatives that shape how we live our lives. And they explain how sharp and insistent are the promptings of conscience. These are a gift from God. And they also say that over and above this, and even more helpful and revealing, is the fact that God, through his chosen prophets, through his sometimes delinquent people Israel, and through the truths and teaching of the Bible, God has stepped up that revelation process and spoken his will, declared his purpose in clear, unequivocal self-giving. A revelation that reaches its completeness and finality when the talking stops and the Son of God comes with light and truth embodied in his very person. His love revealed in his death and resurrection. God makes the move. God reaches in. God speaks. And we can know him because he lets himself be known. Which brings us to today, celebrated throughout the world as Pentecost Sunday, when we consider the nature of that revealed truth about God and what it means to our understanding of him. Now, you might not see the inverted commas, but they're there around the words, our understanding of God. Reminding us that we're really well advised to remember that the notion of our grasping the reality of Almighty God, with even the best endeavours of our minds, is a pretty ambitious undertaking. We would do well to demonstrate an appropriate awareness that our best approximations at grasping his nature and his character are pretty likely to be partial and inadequate. We should neither crow about the extent of our understanding nor close our minds to the searching and insights of others. God is pretty big, you would think, and we are pretty small, we know. So a God that we could categorise and define and contain in our creeds or our dogmas would be too small to be the real thing. The real thing, you would hope, would transcend our best definitions, our cleverest computations. But if we don't see that, then our God is too small. Indeed, if you go on the internet and put what is God like into your search engine, something like seven and a half million sites can be visited. So if you want to unpack the rich content of the notion of God, to think that we could explore that fully in a Sunday morning service in the auditoire would be at best considered ambitious, or at worst, arrogant folly. However, speak of him we must, describe God we try to, worship of God is something we delight in, and Pentecost invites the church to celebrate the discovery of the revolution of the truth that we've been singing about today, of God as Father and Son and Spirit. And this understanding we appreciate isn't something that was invented by the church in a moment of head-scratching theological hyperactivity. Ah, 
Father, Son, and Spirit. That would be a good idea. It was discovered. A surprise. A gift of God's self-revelation. An explosion of truth into the experience of the church. And no one thought it up. No one made it up. It simply blew into the consciousness of the church as a reality to be recognized and dealt with and described as best they could. It was how it was. It was how it was. And they learned to accept their experience of God, which could only mean one thing, that God is Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And and this is kind of how it happened. The idea of God the Father, you know, had been around for a long time. Generations got the idea, they'd experienced the meaning of the imagerist. God, the Father of us all, we're all his children who made all things. We are his, he holds us to his heart. All those pictures. And then lo and behold, the Son came among us. Jesus, our Lord, and his followers came to appreciate that really to understand him, And what he said and what he did, in a way that was beyond words, but with a reality that was right in front of them and could not be denied, the only way to understand what was happening here was to see that God had sent his son into the world, that the world might be saved through him. Everything about Jesus, his mysterious birth, his truth, his love, his searing intimacy with the Father... His resurrection power, his moments of revealed glory, it all spoke of his utter oneness with the Father, his utter dependence on his Father, his unique connection with his Father. The only way they could describe that was to say, the Son has come. And then it all kicked off on Pentecost Sunday, as we read, and the Spirit erupted into the story of the church the very living inner power of God, the very presence of God in the heart of the believers. This experience of the living God in their story that made the weak strong and the frightened brave and the speechless into bold proclaimers of the gospel, willing to leave the sanctuary of their locked room to turn the world upside down. And the church knew they weren't doing this by themselves. They hadn't the words. They hadn't summoned up the bravery. They didn't have the persuasive power to change the hearts of men and women. They, they didn't have the guts to take this vision. It, it was as if, well, all they could say was, it was as if Christ himself was with them. All of them, everywhere, wherever they went. Christ walked with them in a way that he never could as he walked the dusty roads of Palestine, contained and constrained by geography and physicality. But now, his spirit of love, his spirit of truth, that gave them deep peace in their heart that was like no other peace the world could give, meant that the impossible became possible. They could do it. Because he was in them and with them. And the thing is, that's how it happened. That's how it was. Nobody made it up. 
Nobody thought it through. Nobody cobbled it together. No one manufactured it. Nobody sat up in an upper room and said, Let, let's do it. Let's make this. It, it's what happened. God gave himself to the world as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All God, all ways of being God, the Father who gives us life, the Son who saves us from our sins, the Holy Spirit who sustains and empowers us in our Christian life. Not invented in some university, not put together by a focus group, just given to us to bless and heal and strengthen us. Not invented, discovered. Other world faiths find this shocking. It cannot be, they say. It must not be. Yet we reply, it has been the experience of the church and it's the unavoidable reality of our faith. God the Father, who calls us by name, who writes our name on the palm of his hand, so much does he love us, so well does he know us. God the Son, who lived and died and rose again and is our saviour, that we might have eternal life. That's, that's our story. And God the Spirit within us to strengthen our resolve and stir our conscience and prod our hesitancy and comfort our pain and empower us to take the good news to all the world. This is our God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. As we sit for a moment of reflection, Vivian will sing.